Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Seems like we're going to study one verse this morning, but it will involve a, a summary and reflection because that's what this is. It's a summary and application of really what Jesus has been teaching since at least chapter 5, verse 17, when he walked us through the commandments, when he applies uh, his teaching uh, about righteousness. You may remember back at verse 20, Jesus said to his disciples, those who would follow him, your righteousness, he said, must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, of course, the disciples might easily have been thinking, Okay, but how righteous do we need to be? Well, this passage will tell you. Let me invite you to consider it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and that you would do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to your power that's at work within us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Jesus has been teaching about righteousness, the righteousness of the kingdom, and he concludes... How righteous must the disciples of Jesus be? He says, perfectly righteous. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so to get at what he's teaching, and as we review what he's said, let me do it in three parts, point you to three things. First, the humility, then, that Jesus produces. Second, the honesty Jesus requires. And thirdly, the hope. That Jesus provides. Humility, honesty, and hope. In the first place, I want you to see the humility Jesus produces here. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Don't try to cut that down to size. In the October 1958 edition of Christian Century, Dr. Norman Pittenger criticized the then living C.S. Lewis. And he included the accusation that Lewis didn't care much for the Sermon on the Mount. So Lewis responded, As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. After all, who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. I mean, haven't you seen how humbling the Sermon on the Mount is? None of us. We'd stand here before a text that calls us to perfection, and we would all say that none of us has fulfilled the Beatitudes. None of us has perfectly lived out what it means to be salt and light, and certainly none of us has lived as righteously as we ought. Though in verses 17 to 20, Jesus told us about his relationship to the law of God and righteousness, he fulfills it 
We'll come back to that. And he told us then about his disciples' relationship. They are to, they are to live it and teach it. And then he gave six illustrations, you remember perhaps, if you were with us. We walked through these. Illustrations about anger and lust and divorce and oath-taking and retaliation and love for our enemies. Now here at verse 48, summing it up, he says, our righteousness should correspond to the Father's righteousness. We are to be nothing, nothing less than perfect. Yes, The word he uses at times can refer to maturity, though often when you see people saying that, they're trying to soften in some way what Jesus is calling for. Though, of course, as others have pointed out, we never think of God as being mature in something. He was never, ever immature in anything, and he is perfectly righteous in all his ways, and he calls us to be like him. There's nothing softening about softening the word. What is the Father like then? Jesus invites us to think through. And you remember how he did it. He walked us through the back half of the Ten Commandments. You remember perhaps at verse 21 and following, he started with the Sixth Commandment. And he said, you shall not commit murder, not even with heart or with words. Then he went to the Seventh Commandment at verse 27 and following. You shall not commit adultery, not even by lust in the heart. And then he took us to the 8th commandment at verse 31, you shall not steal. Now you may not remember that. I didn't put it that way at the time. It's a little harder to see, but but Jesus, it's easy to see, has done the 6th and the 7th. In the next breath, he'll say the ninth. I think right there on divorce, he's referred really to the 8th. He's applied the commandment about adultery and marriage, the 7th commandment, to the issue of unbelief justly robbing our spouse of the spouse that belongs to them or robbing another, defrauding another by the spouse that belongs to them. And then he does take us quite clearly to the idea of the ninth commandment, verse 33, you shall not uh, bear false witness, you shall not, and he applies it to truth-telling and taking oaths, you remember, we said, he said, say what you mean, mean what you say, and do what you say you will do. That should be sufficient. <laughs> and, then, and then again, a little more obscurely, but I think if you see that he's walking through the commandments, he takes you to the 10th commandment at verse 38 and following. For the positive side of what he says in that passage, the positive side of the negative, you shall not covet, it positively means you shall be content with what God has given you, which means not hoarding your time and your energy and your money for yourself, but what? Going the extra mile when somebody demands one. Or giving to the one who asks. Uh, take the shirt off your back if they ask for something, right? In other words, it's, it's stuff about God's providence in your life, your contentment with his provision, and your, your willingness to be generous like he is generous to his enemies, So he's walked you through these commandments, applying them in various ways. And then he summed it up with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, even the neighbor who is your enemy. You are to love your enemies, he said. At verse 43, love fulfills the law. So what has he done? He has shown you the perfection of your father in heaven. The law is a window through which we gaze into glory and see how good God truly is. He doesn't murder. 
He's never unjustly angry. He doesn't commit adultery. And we might say Jesus in the flesh never lusted. And he perfectly keeps faithful to his bride, his church. He keeps his promises. He makes no vows without fulfilling them. What he says he will do, he does. What he says is true, is true. He, we saw, turns the other cheek when he slapped on one. He's generous to the needy. He gives more than we try to take from him. God gave his own son. He loves his enemies. He causes the sun to shine upon the the wicked and his rain to fall upon the unjust. You see what he's done? He showed you how good God is. Sinclair Ferguson remarks at this point, it's interesting how as parents, we often expect standards of perfection from our children when we don't even expect that from ourselves. You've heard the expression first-time obedience. It gets bandied about in circles of how to parent children. Require of them first-time obedience. (laughs) Now look, I get it. Children do not have the right to disobey their parents under God's authority. Aside from parents calling them to sin. Obedience is proper. It's right. And yet you and I have a life pattern, a lifelong life pattern of not doing first-time obedience to God ourselves and certainly not doing consistent, repetitive obedience over the same things time and again. And yet we show little patience to our kids, but great charity toward ourselves. We can be thankful God isn't like us. In that way, he doesn't call for a perfection in us that's absent in himself. So, what is Christ doing? He is ripping up the conscience of his hearers. He's wielding the law like a hammer to knock the pride out of us, he's wielding the law like a sword to pierce the heart. He's saying, We are murderers. We're unjustly angry with others. We're adulterers. We lust for those whom God hasn't given us. We're liars. We don't follow through on the promises we make. We, we return insult for insult. We're cold-hearted towards the needy and we're hard-hearted to people we think hate or despise us. Have you realized, in light of all of this, how your heart is desperately wicked? Then do you see why you need an atonement that only Jesus can provide? Why you need Jesus to perfectly fulfill the law of God on your behalf? To be righteous on your behalf? And why you need him to bear the curse of a broken law on your behalf upon the cross? So we said previously, don't say to God, God, you should accept my best efforts. I'm trying as hard as I can. Don't say to God, you should be satisfied with my sincerity, however sloppy my obedience. No, no, no. Put your hope in someone else, not you. When J. Gresham Machen, founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and and a founder of uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, 
When he was dying, he sent a telegram now very famously to John Murray, which read, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. He was getting at the idea that Jesus is the righteous one. All then who come to God through faith in him are clothed in his righteousness. And so I ask you, has the perfection of your heavenly father's righteousness and the perfection of your good shepherd Jesus' own righteousness brought you low? So low that your only hope is Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are not what you should be. But thank God Hebrews 10 verse 14 is true. By a single offering, Christ has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We don't believe in perfectionism around here at Redeemer. Most churches don't believe in it. I mean, John Wesley, who taught it and propagated it, believed in it, but he didn't think he'd ever himself attained it. We don't believe that you can, in this life, live sinlessly perfect as a Christian. But you can be, from now and forever, clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, which is sufficient and all that you need through faith in him. And that is tremendously freeing. I told you the story of C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, who was greeting parishioners outside the service one Sunday. And he was accompanied by elders who gathered around in a throng of people in a big church, shaking hands with the pastor on the way out the door. Some of you know what that's like. As people crowded by, an elderly lady approached him with a look of consternation on her face. Mr. Spurgeon, she began sharply, you are the most arrogant, obnoxious, annoying man that I have ever heard of. And I wanted to be the first to tell you. The crowd grew quiet around. It was embarrassing to hear. She stormed off in a huff. and All eyes looked to Spurgeon. And he turned to an elder standing next to him and said, she doesn't know the half of it. Don't you want to hang out with people like that? Don't you want to be that kind of person? Unpretentious, unassuming, self-effacing, non-defensive. It is only the truth that you are in yourself, as Revelation puts it, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And yet you are in the gospel and in Christ through faith in him at the same time. Pardoned, accepted, loved, righteous. It's only that that can make you humble in this way. Spurgeon knew that he was, he was on rock bottom as far as God was concerned. And it colored his opinion of himself such that he could forgive and be patient with and love and show kindness to an old woman. Because he knew that Even though he was a screw-up like us, he also knew God loves screw-ups. The gospel is for screwed-up people. You don't have to make yourself perfect to be right with God. He makes you perfect in Christ so that you can be right with him. And that will knock the legs out of your self-righteousness right out from under you. Has it? 
That's the first thing I want you to see. But there's more. And the second thing I want you to see is the honesty Jesus requires here. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I say honesty because what I want to do is I want you to, I want to remind you of the way that the scribes and the Pharisees taught the very verses Jesus himself taught where he contradicted them. And I want you to see that contrast again and, and feel and, 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 and see how he's handling the law. Because the Pharisees, we know, were funk, they were basically hypocrites. They were the people everybody thought was good and moral. And Jesus had harder and harsher things to say about them than, any, than anybody else. They were hypocrites. They, they felt that they had kept the law. And in light of that, they were arrogant and looked down their nose at everybody else. And so they were unrepentant about their failure to keep the law. And Jesus wants us to face the law in truth and face our own sinful heart in honesty so that we might live a life of continual repentance and not be hypocrites. And you're going to have to be honest about yourself then. And so I want you to think about the framework with which Jesus corrects their errors in four or five parts uh, by looking back at some of the things he'd said. Notice that he had said about these Pharisees and scribes, these hypocrites, that they had made the law of God about the external and denied the internal. So they said, you know, as long as you don't physically commit murder, you're good. You kept the law. As long as you don't physically commit adultery, you're fine. You're righteous. But Jesus, right? He, he takes away that, that mere externalism and he drives it home to the heart. And he says, you murder people by your unjust anger. You murder people with your lips by cutting them down. Don't lust, Jesus says. Don't look greedily with your heart and with your eyes towards someone, not your spouse. But you all do that. See what he does. He, takes, he makes the law internal and about the heart, not merely external. That's one thing. The second they, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, they added their own laws to the law of God. Not taking God's word seriously enough, they added to it. So they could say, you may remember, they said, we must love our neighbor. True enough. And then they said, well, but you can hate your enemies. Which was never commanded, never permitted in the Old Testament. But they added to the commandment in such a way, something that never was the law of God, so that they could escape the force of the law of God, demanding that they love. Jesus is saying, look, love your neighbor always meant loving your enemies. And you can't subtract that. You can't add in, hate your enemies, that's fine. And so they twisted the law of God and added to it so that they could avoid its demand. Thirdly, the scribes and Pharisees majored on the minors and they minored on the majors. This is a classic of legalism. For instance, we saw that they felt really good about themselves if they put away a wife as long as they gave her a bill of divorce and sent her on her way. They did what was formerly, uh, formally proper so that she could have a written document and therefore prove that she was legally divorced and, and perhaps remarried, right? <laughs> but of course, they minored on the major part, which was what? 
be faithful to her. So they pretended they were doing the right thing when they were, in fact, doing the unloving thing. And legalism always does that. It majors on the minors and it minors on the majors. Fourth, they asked, when do we not have to keep the law? When do we get to escape its application to ourselves? Okay, how did they do that? Well, you remember in the words about the oaths. Jesus had to correct them. Why? Because they, they said, I don't have to keep my oaths as long as I didn't pledge my oath to God, but instead I pledged it to heaven or earth or the temple or the altar. And depending upon the degree of seriousness of those things was the degree to which I needed to keep it. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Well, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't even have to swear an oath if you are the kind of person with the integrity who doesn't try to hide the truth with clever words. There's a, there's a story about W.C. Fields, the comedian from the early part of the, the, the 19th century. He was a notoriously immoral man. One evening, a friend of him caught him in a hotel room reading a Gideon Bible. His friend was horrified, knowing the moral state of W.C. Fields, and said to him, W.C., what are you doing reading that Bible? And Fields responded, looking for loopholes. That's exactly the way the Pharisees approached the law of God. When does the law not apply to me? When do I get to escape its injunction? Fifth, they twisted the application of the law of God. So they took the parts of the law that were for the civil and public life of the nation state and they made those laws apply to the individual at a personal level. So, for instance, they took the expression an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which was what? It was about in the public court system showing restraint in the exercise of punishment. It wasn't go all out, smack them down, hit them as hard as you can because God just loves to really be harsh. No, it was God saying, you people love to be harsh and you must not be. The punishment must fit the crime. It must not go over and above the crime. But what did they do? They took eye for an eye and they applied it not to the courts but to themselves and they said that gives me permission to punch the guy in the face who punches me in the face. Right? To knock out his tooth if he knocks out my tooth. They, they basically, again, they, they, they took the law as a permission to carry out personal vengeance on their enemies. And Jesus says, no, you've got to love your enemies. Right? So, so what's wrong? I mean, these are just some of the examples Jesus has shown us. What's wrong with the legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees? What's wrong is that it, it taught, they taught themselves and others that they could be saved by their obedience. This is why you make the law about externals and not internals, because then it's keepable. I've never murdered anybody. I haven't physically done adultery. I didn't swear by God, so whatever I swore doesn't matter. I'm a good law keeper. I'll go to heaven. It totally undermines the gospel. It would be like us, just to take a turn a different application illustration, it would be like us saying, I think, saying money is evil, money out there, instead of the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil in here. And then feeling justified being poor while we envy the rich. 
The problem isn't money and the problem isn't their money. The problem is my heart. Legalism also subtracts from God. What's wrong with it? It subtracts from God's law what he commands or forbids. And yet adds to God's law man-made rules about what we're able to do. So then I can say I did it. Legalism in this form in American Christianity over the years, not so much anymore, forbade dancing and card playing. And still in places, forbids wine that makes glad the heart of man. So that we can feel righteous by abstaining while looking down our noses at others who enjoy their Christian liberty. When God's word hasn't forbidden any of those things. Not necessarily. Legalism majors on the majors and and majors on the minors and minors on the majors. Like we might say in our own day, like caring more about tithing a few garden vegetables than treating our biggest business client justly. Legalism asks, when don't I have to obey? It twists the law by misapplying the civil law and, 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 and permitting then... Uh, my own personal relationships to function like a system of the court of law. It's fundamentally proud-hearted about its own performance and hard-hearted about the failures of others and lays on people's backs bricks they cannot carry. And by contrast, Jesus says, would you look at the law and be honest? Examine your heart and be honest. And haven't you, if you've been tracking with our sermon series, haven't you felt like the further we've gone, the deeper your sin, the less you're what you ought to be and want to be as a disciple of Jesus? That's totally understandable. That is the normal Christian life. Jesus says, my people will be humbled by the law. They will see that they are called to a high standard of moral perfection and love. They will fall far short of. They will beg mercy and receive it. They will ask for the kingdom and it will be given to them. They will long to be like their Father in heaven. And I will make it so. I will make it so. So the spirit of the Pharisee and the legalist is not, Oh, oh, how I love your law, oh God. How can I be a rule keeper for Jesus? That's not the spirit of a legalist. The legalist says, when do I get to escape obeying God? I'd I'd like that plan. And that attitude breeds hypocrisy. Professing to love God while really running from him at every turn. Professing to love our neighbor while we're really only serving him out of our own self-interest. The way to avoid that hypocrisy is to have the deep honesty that comes from being humbled by the law, seeing its exacting demand, owning up to your failures, trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, and then hungering and thirsting for righteousness like the righteousness of your heavenly Father. Instead of pretending to be good and you have it all together, you can say to God and others, I'm sorry I sinned against you. Please forgive me. I am the chief of sinners. That would be honest. Third, the hope Jesus provides. Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is 
perfect. God offers hope for success, not just mercy for failure. And he does it here in a, arguably a kind of ambiguous way. What you have in verse 48, be perfect, is a command. It's almost uniformly taken as a command. And yet it also gives hope. Because of the ambiguity of the Greek, which is like the ambiguity of English. This is a future indicative. You, uh, ESV says, must be perfect. Others, you shall be perfect. It's a future. You will be perfect. In Greek and English, the future is both able to predict and command. So in English, we might say, it will rain. And that's a prediction. Prediction about the future. Or we might say, you will attend this meeting. And that's a command. (laughs) You will show up for this meeting. Now, the reason translators take this as more command than promise is because Jesus has been giving a lengthy series of ethical instructions throughout. And I do think it's proper to understand him saying, as I've preached, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We could preach that from a lot of texts. It's true, even if Jesus meant this restrictively as a promise and not a command. But taking it as a promise, you will be perfect... Jesus is saying, like he said to us early in, in the earlier, the meek will inherit the earth. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Does God ever command us to do what we can't do? Yes, he does. All the time. And the fault never lies with him or his command or his law. His law is always good. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is good. It is right. Nothing wrong with that. The fault lies with us, not with God. It lies in our hearts, not with his law. We are incapable of doing all that he commands because of our sinful nature, because we're bound to Adam and Eve in the fall, and because we're all twisted up and self-centered inside. That doesn't make it absurd for God to command perfection. It just means that we will need to have him give us the perfection he demands, which he does in Jesus, first by accounting it to us, so we are accounted righteous in Christ, And second, by working it in us as he conforms us to the image of his son, which will not be completed this side of glory, but in glory will be full and final. You will be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 1 John 3 verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so you and I, we need the humility and the honesty and the hope that Jesus gives here. All of us do, pastors included. John Newton, the famous preacher, pastor, poet, wrote to a fellow pastor who was depressed because of his feeling of guilt over his sins. 
Newton wrote him these words. You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, you cannot be too aware of the inward and inbred evils you complain of. But you may be, indeed you are, improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person and work and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin. But when we examine your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst evil you complain of. See what Newton is saying? You complain about your sins, but you don't confess your worst sin, your self-righteousness. True faith, though, can say, I am a miserable sinner. Yet I am dearly loved by my Savior, who loved me and gave himself for me. My Father loves me and sent his Son to die for me. He accepts me in spite of who I am. He loves me so much, he won't leave me as I am. He will make me perfect, like he is perfect. That's hope. Let's be honest enough to say we need it. Let's pray. Father, we are not like you, but thank you that Jesus became like us yet without sin, but to die in the sinner's place, to bear our sin upon the cross, to rescue us. Thank you. Help us to know the hope of that and teach us to be more truthful about our own failures and more trustful in him. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.